From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The kingdom of God doesn't have to be this bastardized thing that we've come to see it the way it's been represented by a lot of people, by conquest or domination or abuse. And so I was trying to use this, kind of convey that idea that, you know, yes, there are lots of people who are trusting in leaders, some of them quite repugnant leaders who don't really represent anything good about Christianity, but that's not actually a real thing. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we are glad to welcome to the show John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent traveling on Air Force One and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. He's the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. And he hosts the Long Game podcast. He's written for the Washington Post, The New Republic, Politico, Vanity Fair, HuffPost, and The Washington Times. He lives in Washington, D.C. You can find out more about him at his website, johnwardwrites.org. That's J-O-N, wardwrites.org. And today we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. John Ward, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm very excited to speak with you. I want to say, first of all, how much I appreciated the way that you approached the subject matter in this book. It was one of the more honest books I have read in a number of years. And let me explain what I mean about that. You looked at your own background and you looked at it analytically. You looked at it in terms of both kind of why things were shown to you as a child and how you carried those things from your childhood into your early adulthood, but you looked at it at every point with a critical eye to say, and how did this begin to affect the world around me? I really appreciated the candor and just the way in which you trusted the reader to take your story and to do with it, I hope, the things that that we're going to do in this conversation, which is to examine it honestly and to learn from it. So I just want to say, first of all, as a reader, thank you so much for setting up the book that way. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that and can't wait to talk about it. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. It lands in the middle of your book. It is an evening in November 2013, and you take us to a gala where Billy Graham is celebrating his 95th birthday. And you say, as you're describing this, that Billy Graham at 95 years old would have preferred to spend that day with his grandchildren, but instead he's in this room. I'd love us to start with you describing that room to us. Who is in it and who helped to set up this gala? The person who told me that Reverend Graham would have preferred to spend the night in a quieter fashion was actually one of his granddaughters, Jerusha, whose last name is not Graham. She took her husband's name. I can't remember what that name is, but that was a bit of reporting that came out of another piece of work I was doing. And I discovered this evening through a piece, another piece I was working on about the rap artist who's also a Christian named Lecrae. It was actually a bit after this piece that even came out that I went back and looked at this ceremony. Lecrae was invited. They did a whole video about Lecrae. Other people at the dinner, the, the one that stands out to me is Rupert Murdoch. He was there. I believe the head of the Marriott Empire was there. And then the thing that stood out to me as I looked back at this video, because I, I think this piece came out in 2013 and I was looking at it years later. And the thing that stood out was that right next to Billy Graham, there was a table with Sarah Palin and then Donald Trump. And I hadn't noticed that 
at first when I was working on the piece about Lecrae. A couple of years later, I noticed that very much, obviously, with Trump being nominee and then the president. And so uh, I drew some conclusions from that, that Trump was uh, had, had kind of marked this subculture as a place he wanted to be and a group that he wanted to win over for quite some time. And you asked who organized that event. It was Franklin Graham, who was Bill, Billy Graham's son and does great work through Samaritan's Purse, but is also a very right wing political actor. What I took from that passage of your book, Testimony, was you were bringing the camera, if you will, into that room and saying, look at the connections and the resonances that are here. There are politicians on the right and even the far right who want to be in the orbit of evangelicals and being around Billy Graham was a chance to do that. But there were also evangelicals who wanted to be in the orbit of these right and far right politicians. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that connection and what you are drawing from that kind of, if you will, mutual back scratching that was happening around this event. Well, the other name I haven't mentioned yet is Jared Falwell Jr., who was also there. And that's the clearest, one of the clearest examples of what you just described, the mutual backscratching, because, of course, Falwell Jr. was really the first domino to fall in the Republican primary in 2015 and 2016 in terms of evangelical big names who endorsed Donald Trump. After the fact, we came to find out that there were these compromising photos, I believe, of Falwell and his wife that Cohen, Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer, had done some kind of deal. I'm a little hazy on the details at this point, but the reporting came out. Cohen said, made some comments later about how they had made a deal to basically keep those photos out of the public eye. So there was definitely some quid pro quo there. The religious leaders, I'm puzzled, actually. You seem to have a very clear idea of what they want from these politicians. Other than fame and access to power, I guess those are the things, right? I, but it, it is a little unclear to me why they would want. I mean, it goes back to Billy Graham. Billy Graham fell into that trap, right? He was very regretful of taking those photos outside the White House after meeting with Richard Nixon. But his son's generation continued, I guess, to fall into that trap. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Ward. He's the national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent traveling on Air Force One and a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. Well, in our first segment of the program, I like to do what I call setting the table. And so we've begun to do that now with this image from 2013 of the birthday party for Billy Graham and the various people who had gathered around him who were not necessarily the people he would have preferred to celebrate his birthday with, at least according to some reports, but who were there because they wanted some form of access or connection. And I want now to shift from that kind of outward-looking perspective to a more inward-looking perspective, because the subtitle of your book is Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. You're not just taking us inside the evangelical movement as a reporter. You're also taking us inside the evangelical movement because you grew up, to some extent, as an insider to this movement. And I wonder if you could briefly share with my listeners what your background was like and how, in, in particular, your childhood could have given you what anyone, a casual observer or a, or a critical observer, would call evangelical bona fides. Sure, yeah. My parents both were part of the Jesus movement in the 70s, and my dad grew up Catholic. My mother grew up a mainline Presbyterian or Episcopal, I'm sorry. And so they both met around college years and were part of a group of people like many at that time who were late teens, high school, college age, who were swept up in that revival. They were part of a Bible study in the D.C. area that met for several years in the early 70s. It became a church in 1977, and I was born that year. I was the first baby dedicated in this church that was led by a couple of men named C.J. Mahaney and Larry Tomzak. Other leaders involved at the time were Che Ahn, who is now actually a huge figure in the New Apostolic Reformation. Lou Engel is also part of that. He was there at the time. And my father was in the mix as well. He was best friends with C.J. Mahaney in high school. And so he became a leader of the church at that time. And he was active in the anti-abortion movement. He led protests outside of clinics 
He was also probably more educated than most of the other leaders. He was working on his master's thesis about C.S. Lewis. And then basically didn't finish that because he was so busy with his job as a pastor at that time. So they started the church. I was dedicated. I kind of was in church growing up. That was all I knew. But I didn't really care that much about church because it was what I knew and it was old hat. And I was more interested in sports. And we have a, a pretty rich, you know, sports history and tradition in my family. But it was actually in college that I became most zealous and on fire, to use a Christian term, and had a, a couple sort of years of really intense religiosity during that period of time. And I was kind of on track to become a leader on the church, actually. Well, and you actually mentioned one of these on fire moments, I believe it was in 1997. And I wonder if you would describe for our listeners you said that you were not really into all of the Christian stuff. You were more into sports. But describe for us what the transition was, this event in 1997. What changed for you and how did that change your behavior? There's a way of telling this. It's really interesting in doing this kind of a writing project, this kind of book, because there's two ways of telling this story. There's a way that I understood it for many years right after the fact. And then there's a way of, of telling it in a more contextualized way that I've come to understand it after having looked at it and written about it and thought about it. But basically, there was a period of time in which the church made a concerted effort to bring people my age in college into a place of involvement in the church. And I was close to home as they kind of tried to keep everybody, if they went to college, closer to home. And so they started asking me to meet with people and tried to get me more involved. And that began a process of me really thinking about how do I feel about the rest of my life and God's role in it and all this thing. And then there was a, a church conference where we went to every, every year over Memorial Day weekend, where I had a very strong experience of feeling like I, I understood the gospel presentation in a way that I hadn't before. And I faced this choice of either selling everything I owned, you know, in a metaphorical sense, and really selling out. And I felt like I had no choice. So that began a process of, of a couple of years of just living all or nothing for my faith. And you mentioned that as a result of that, your primary relationships changed. I believe you mentioned that you abandoned a best friend and certain others and other relationships became more prominent. I wonder if you could talk about what, when you looked at the world during that brief period, what did the world look like to you from that perspective? It kind of, I think that I didn't look at the world that much. My world became this pretty small universe of church services and the Bible and theology, because our church was really embracing Calvinist theology at that time, which was a big pivot away from the charismatic roots that we had come up with. So it's an interesting question. How did I look at the world? My when I really kind of close my eyes here and think about my mental architecture at that time, there's not much that exists outside of those church settings. Well, and you mentioned that this was a rather brief part of your journey. What began to fray for you as you were in this space? Where did that begin to change and why did it begin to change? I think there's two big elements to that. One is the dissonance between the quest for a feeling of being close to God that I was trained in and my desire to live out my faith in the real world. And we can come back to that in a minute, but I don't want to lose sight of the second factor, which I think really was a, the biggest negative factor, which was just this, this Calvinist theology. I'm already fairly self-analytical and introspective, but this doctrine of indwelling sin, we really focused on it. And it created, and I was in these small groups with other men or, or other young men, college age guys, where we would just obsess about sexuality and pornography and masturbation. And it was pretty cringy, you know, in retrospect, but at the time it produced a lot of self-loathing and I would say it was probably pretty disfiguring in a lot of ways. And so I just, I burnt out from that. I really wanted to live out my faith, but I couldn't really figure out how to do that if being close to God meant I had these ongoing experiences of an emotional sort. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential elections. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with John Ward. He's chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent traveling on Air Force One and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. I want to return to something that you said right before the break. I was asking you about how in this period when you became, and your word is radicalized around the Christian faith, I asked you what the world looked like when you looked at it from that radicalized position. And you said, basically, I didn't look at the world that much. And what I want my listeners to understand is that statement you didn't look at the world that much, is actually a microcosm for the critique that you bring to the evangelical movement itself. And so I wonder if you could begin to expand from that personal experience of not looking at the world that much to how you're looking at evangelicalism over maybe the last 15 to 25 years. How did evangelicalism begin to not look at the world that much? I think maybe the best way to do this is to use the two archetypes that I try to use in my book. And they're two of the, the leaders in the church movement. One is C.J. Mahaney, who was my dad's best friend and became ultimately consolidated control of our church and became the leader of that church and moved it towards the more Calvinists and the new Calvinism in the early aughts. The other archetype is in the book is Lou Engel, who was a leader in the church early on. And he and Cheon moved out west. Larry Tomzak, the other leader, is part of that group. I would say the C.J. archetype is the one that really doesn't look at the world that much at all. In his preaching and in his teaching, he will focus really only on things that are explicitly in the text of the Bible. And so he'll talk about literally the only things he will talk about in his sermons other than the Bible is sports. Really very little discussion of politics or public affairs or culture, unless it's the occasional cultural reference to sort of bemoan the state of culture. So it's very much not a stakeholder position in the common good. I wouldn't say it's adversarial, it's more quietist. And I think there's a, I'm not a historian on these matters, but there's a pretty long tradition of a fair amount of that kind of quietist, withdrawn, isolationist, bubble-type Christianity. You know, I think he is a more well-read type archetype and so there is more discernment in some ways, but it's not actualized outside of the four walls of the church. It's not applied. And so that leaves a vacuum, in my opinion, for the other archetype, the Lou Angles, Cheon, Larry Tomzak archetype, who you now see in the New Apostolic Reformation. These are people who want big action, revival, a lot of supernaturalism, shock and awe type spirituality. And they have gone back and forth. They were not very politically engaged for a while, except for on abortion, kind of like my father was. But there's a great podcast out called Charismatic Revival Fury by Matthew D. Taylor that really chronicles incredibly well how over the last 20 to 30 years, really the last 20 years, they've embraced 
more of this seven mountains, dominionist type theology and are, are very political now, but it's not based in reality or certainly not in a common good type perspective. Let me just take a moment and ask you, if you would, to expand on this phrase you just used, Seven Mountains Dominionist Ideology, and this is associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. And so if you could just tell us when we hear this phrase, Seven Mountains, or when we hear this word dominionist, what's meant by that? Seven Mountains philosophy was around for a bit until the mid-2000s, and then a guy named Lance Wallnau really took it to the next level and introduced it into these NAR circles. And now you have it embraced by people like Bill Johnson, the head of Bethel Church, and a lot of these leaders from that world. And basically the idea is there are seven mountains of culture, politics, business, media, and others. And the job or the call of Christians is to go up those mountains and either influence them or control them. And that's kind of a key distinction, actually, because before Lance Wallnau and NAR really embraced this philosophy, the previous iteration of this idea was more about influence, uh, which is a fairly common Christian belief, be salt and light. The NAR has really taken a much more top-down command and control approach to this idea. And that's how you get the fact that the NAR and these types of more Pentecostal or charismatic Christians became a huge backbone of Christian Trumpism because they saw him as somebody who could control the mountain of politics and could be used as a vehicle for advancing their policy goals. Let me make sure that I've heard you correctly. So you're drawing a contrast between C.J. Mahaney, who is a leader who basically is wanting to foster the church community around the Bible. And the visual example of this that you give in your book, Testimony, is you were encouraged to stand on the corner and hand out water as a way of enticing people to come into the church to hear the message. And in contrast to that, You've got Lou Engel, who has this kind of seven mountains dominionist philosophy, which means go out into the world in a command and control manner, as you said. But you also point out in your book testimony that it's not to go out into the world in the name, for example, of social justice, but rather to go out into the world in terms of power. Now, I want to make sure these are all my words, not yours. Have I understood you correctly? And would you adjust anything that I've just said? Well, I think somebody like Lou would probably say there is an element of social justice because he sees abortion as as a social justice issue. I just think that because the lens was so narrow and the worldview was so Manichaean that the abortion-only focus of these evangelicals allowed them to be captured by the Republican Party. And I think there's a lot of space for Christian political engagement from an anti-abortion perspective that is more measured in the way it approaches politics and the two parties and tries to maintain more of a prophetic and outsider voice towards these parties. And, and I think the problem for the Lou Angle folks at this point is that they have become, as I said, captured by the Republican Party. So, you know, I think you saw this with Trump. Like he could say or do anything as long as he told and did what these folks wanted on the issue of abortion. And that's a pretty deformed political approach. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential elections. We're speaking today about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. Well, I want to return to something that you said a few minutes ago, you said that this kind of radicalized Christian worldview that you had began to break down because you had a desire to live out your faith in the real world. And so I'd like for you to kind of compare and contrast now the desire that you are naming that you had to go out and live your faith in the real world and the way that someone like Lou Engel was saying that you should go out and live in the real world. Why wasn't the Lou Engel path of dominionism the right path for you? 
I'm glad you mentioned the scene at the stoplight because that was the only real, you know, engagement with culture that I saw at the C.J. Mahaney Church. And that was obviously not sufficient. I was more interested in meeting actual real needs in the world without feeling like I was selling something to people. And that would be more of an unconditional love going out and being the hands and feet of Christ. And I think when it comes to the cultural engagement of somebody like Lou Angle, I think the problem for me begins with the Manichaeism, the black and white approach, which is really, to me, rooted in a lack of carefulness about how we think about things. And to me, it's, it's a, a failure to live out the greatest commandment that Christ gave Christians, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Andy Crouch wrote a great book, The Life We're Looking For, where he pointed out that, you know, the Shema from the Old Testament has these words of loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And it was actually Jesus in his teachings who added to love God with all your mind. And there was certainly a lack of intellectual curiosity growing up in church, I think just writ large, but I've never, never been able to get away from asking questions and wondering what's behind the answers. And so wanting to know more. And really, I I write about how my father, I think, really embedded that in me by reading the Proverbs to me. Well, and this was one of the parts of your book, Testimony, that I especially liked. And it's a book that I liked from start to finish. But this was one of the moments that really grabbed me. Late in the book, you actually explore this idea that we are to love God with all of our mind as well as all of our heart. And you look at and contrast that with some of the ways that your co-religionists look at passages, for example, 1 Corinthians, where we're being told to be fools for Christ. And you read that differently than perhaps some of your fellow Christians might read that idea, that call to be a fool for Christ. I wonder if you would just briefly lay out the contrast for my listeners here. How do they think about being a fool for Christ in your estimation versus how you think that we should read a passage like that, your idea of epistemological humility? Hmm. Well, first, I'll I'll just talk about the John Calvin quote, which I found here in the manuscript. John Calvin wrote, by being fools, we do not mean being stupid. The profession of Christianity requires us to be immature, not in our thinking, but in malice. And I think that's a profound point. It's basically saying, we're not going to buy into the idea that uh, if somebody gets you, you get them back. It's taking the more difficult road of forgiveness and being willing to be wrong and to accept defeat. But when it comes to epistemic modesty, that has become really crucial to me. And I hope to talk about it a lot in talking about this book, because one of the verses that my father drilled into me was from James, where he said, everyone should be quick quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. And I think what we see a lot of nowadays is a quickness to reach snap judgments and a quickness to become angry. And we're obviously not listening a lot to each other. And epistemic modesty is just the notion that we don't, there's a lot we don't know. And there's really a never-ending vista. And I'm discovering this just as I'm writing, promoting this book. There's so much that as I reflect on this book that I am now seeing, like even as I wrote it, there's so much I just was so ignorant of and have so much to learn about. And so epistemic modesty is just a way of slowing down and saying, first of all, there's a lot I don't know. Second of all, what I think I know, I have to embrace the, the statement that I could be wrong. And so once I think you, you really actually truly embrace that statement, I don't think it's relativism. I think it's just modesty. And there's a tension in accepting the fact that you've got to be for something, but you got to hold it loosely. Well, and I'd like to invite you to characterize without caricature here, because you've just described sort of your position of epistemic humility, epistemological humility. But there is another side to this within wider Christianity, and that is a strong desire to know the right answer perhaps at all costs. Now, again, these are my words, not yours. But that's what I see when I look at the national stage. But also I see that 
to some extent described in your book, Testimony, that there is a strong desire within a strand of evangelicalism to lock things down into absolutes. And I wonder, again, my invitation here, if you could characterize that for my listeners without caricature. I think part of it's got to be human nature. Some of us seem to want that certainty more than others. It's uncomfortable to be in a liminal place in between knowing and not knowing. Warren Throckmorton was a great interview for me and writing about him. He's this professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania whose personal story and life are a really quite wonderful witness to this. I, I think Christ like embracing the tension of knowing and not knowing. So I think human nature is definitely part of it. And I think also a lot of it just comes back to the way that people have been taught to read the Bible. You know, Mark Knoll in his book in the late 90s called it the Bible onlyism. I'm not a biblical scholar. I want to tread lightly on talking authoritatively about how we read the Bible. But clearly it became more clear to me over the last several years that we were taught that the Bible was one thing. As if that's the way that it emerged from the words of Christ himself and clearly the way we've been, that we were reading the Bible growing up is actually more of a historical anomaly in terms of the lifespan of Christianity and certainly not the norm for historic Christianity. That was actually quite a big uh, realization for me because so much relates back to how people read the Bible. It really does set the template for how you engage with almost all of these questions. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent traveling aboard Air Force One and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. He's the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. He hosts the Long Game podcast. Ward has written for The Washington Post, The New Republic, Politico, Vanity Fair, HuffPost, and The Washington Times. He lives in Washington, D.C. You can find out more about his work at his website, johnwardwrites.org. That's J-O-N-Wardwrites.org. And today we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. He's the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter, and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. He hosts the Long Game podcast. You can find out more about all of his work at his website, johnwardwrites.org. That's J-O-N. W-A-R-D-Rights.org. Today we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. I want to get slightly personal now, because in both reading your book, Testimony, and in this conversation, I have been struck again and again by a simple but really unexplainable fact of how you're approaching all this. You don't seem cynical. You have said that you were looking at these other leaders and you had the sense that some of them were wanting to sell something and you had no interest in having a Christianity that that sold something. But you're still, it seems to me, fundamentally interested in Christianity, in the Christian message, in, dare I say it, the gospel. Help me understand how you're not cynical, John Ward, after all this reporting. Help me understand. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I I guess the answer is that I still feel the power of the gospel in my life, and I've seen it play out. And I, I think the, the core of the Christian gospel is so compelling, even as I grapple, you know, even just 
recently with concepts like Reinhold Deeper talking about how religion is often symbolic. I can relate to that. I can relate to walking on two paths, one in which everything is open to question and one in which we grapple with the mysteries of ultimate reality with the symbols that we have. That's, I get it. But some things are incontrovertible, and that is the power of forgiveness and the power of service and the power of love uh, and the power of being willing to lay down your life for your brother and to love your enemy. Those are just amazing things that have real power. So I guess I'm interested in power and I'm interested in reality and I'm on a quest to find those things. And I guess if I, if I end up deciding that there is no goodness in the world and that there is nothing worth fighting for, then I could become cynical. But I just don't think I'll ever get there because how could you look at your child and feel that way? I really like the succinct way that you summed up your view of the gospel here for my listeners. And it, it, it coalesces around three words, forgiveness, service, and love. And as we look back through your book testimony, you give us, again, a very honest account of all of the ways in which institutional Christianity tried to teach you something other than forgiveness, service, and love. And so I'm wondering, as you look back over your story, where were the moments where this was what rang out to you? Where were the moments where this was what you were taught? Who taught you? What taught you forgiveness, service, and love in this sweep of your life? A great question. I want to go back to my father who taught me, you know, the Bible over breakfast and taught me from James, taught me from Proverbs, taught me to, to seek understanding with all you have. I think there was just a real mark made on me when I listened to John Piper, oddly enough, who's a pretty conservative theologian. But I give Piper some credit for rejecting a lot of what's unhealthy about evangelical culture as well, even as he's made some very troubling comments about women and other issues. None of us are perfect. I'm not trying to justify it, but he's a complex, complex bird. He gave a sermon probably 20 years ago now where he talked about how Christianity does not go forward by conquest or domination, not to mention manipulation. And that just rung true to me. And I read the Bible a lot, you know, as a young person, especially, and that connected with what I was seeing in the text and and with what I was seeing in the real world. And uh, so that's another moment. Those are the two that stand out. And then along the way since then, you know, the writings of Mako Fujimura over the last several years, who's a painter and a writer, I've read pretty much everything he's written. And he actually gave a speech called Lenten Tears for Fragile Reflection or something along those lines where he talks about some of these same themes. And then Fleming Rutledge over the last several years as well has been a big inspiration, helping me reconnect to Advent. And so we're, we're trying to reposition our hearts and minds. I, I am at least, I don't know about my kids and my wife, but we are doing Advent observances as a family. I'm, I'm trying to reorient myself that way as well. So I think at this point, many of my listeners would want me to ask this question. You've done this kind of expose on the evangelical movement in your book, Testimony. Would you still consider yourself or describe yourself as an evangelical? You're hitting up against my instinctive allergic reaction to labels. I have a real problem with using language to contain and box in. But, you know, it is obviously something that's necessary, too, to make meaning. I don't think I would. I have, I have evangelical instincts still, and that'll probably always be the case. But I obviously, I just cannot associate myself with what evangelicalism has become now. I really like that phrase you just used, evangelical instincts. And when you use that phrase, an image from your book, Testimony, jumps to my mind. You're on the Morning Joe television program, and you quote Chance the Rapper, don't look at the kings, look at the kingdoms. I wonder if you could take us back to that moment, because that, to me, that jumped out to me as a really, that's going to the Seven Mountains, and that's standing in the television studio, and you're proclaiming something there. That seemed evangelical to me, but I wonder if you could take us back to that moment, and realizing that you don't want to use the word evangelical here, not the label, 
talk us through what was going on in your mind and how that moment sort of played out. Yeah, I'm trying to convey in that moment that there is a reality to the faith that I think still exists. You know, that there is a, this, that the kingdom of God doesn't have to be this bastardized thing that we've come to see it the way it's been represented by a lot of people, by conquest or domination or abuse. And so I was trying to use this quote from Chance that I had just seen and, and kind of convey that idea that, you know, yes, there are lots of people who are trusting in leaders, some of them quite repugnant leaders who don't really represent anything good about Christianity, but that's not actually the real thing. You know, Jamie Smith called it the, the shadow, I think he, he said. And so I made the comment and it was like a record scratch moment. It was as if, you know, everybody in the studio just looked at me out of the corner of their eye for a moment as if I was, you know, I had something on my face. They did not seem to get it. And that's the way it went over. But I'm glad you mentioned the Seven Mountains thing because there is a part of me that just can't help but think these folks have come to this Seven Mountains theology over the last 15, 20 years. I kind of took that approach to my faith and journalism and politics 20 plus years ago. And I spent a lot of time gaining expertise and, and apprenticing in journalism and trying to understand the way the politics work and applying my faith to it all the while. But when it came to uh, the 2016 election, I was working from those same presuppositions of Christian principles, making the case that Donald Trump was a danger to democracy. And a lot of those Seven Mountains adherents did not listen to that point, to that message. And I think were misled and manipulated in part because of the narrowness of their view. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Ward. He's chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. I really appreciate the way that you just phrased this. You said you honestly believe that there is still something of value in Christianity, and you're willing to bring that even into moments like the one that we described at Morning Joe, even if, as you described, it was like a record scratch moment where nobody else got it. I really appreciate that, and I just want to say to listeners, that rings out not only in this conversation, but also on every page of your book, Testimony, that it is clear that you are being critical, you're being honest, but also you genuinely believe this stuff and it has changed your life. And I'm grateful because that's exactly the kind of thing that I want this program to get at is people who are doing exactly what you're doing. But it also brings to mind a moment that you describe in the later part of your book testimony where you have an extended exchange with another person who has tried to live Christianity in the public sphere, Eric Metaxas. And I wonder if you would walk my listeners through what that exchange was like and what you learned from that exchange, perhaps about Eric Metaxas, but also about evangelicalism more generally. Sure. I wrote about Eric before he went MAGA, and I think this was 2019. And it was a look back at the way that he had been a critic of Trump to a certain point, and then and then became, you know, wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed where he said it was, I think, basically Christian's duty to vote for Trump. And, you know, I, I had read his, you know, being a, a good faithful evangelical back in the early aughts, I had read his, his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and thought of him as somebody who represented a more thoughtful face, Christianity. You know, he would do these sort of salon talks in New York. He was well-dressed. He spoke well. Al Mohler is somebody who's similar, who's very conservative, but presents an intellectual veneer. And so I wrote about this, this whole transition, this evolution that he had gone through and the confusion of many people who knew him as to why he had done that. And so I engaged him. I sent him a long email with a bunch of questions that were clearly very critical of President Trump. Uh, I've never made a, a real secret of that. And it's not ideological or partisan. It really has to do with wanting to preserve democracy and the rule of law. And so as I, McTaxis wrote back and we had a several thousand word email exchange and I went through this process of really 
looking closely at my questions, his answers, printing, you know, as any good journalist would do, printing it out, really thinking about his answers. And it became clear that there was not a lot of coherence to his answers and that a lot of what he was accusing his antagonists or political opponents of doing, he was doing himself in the very answers he was giving to me, you know, such as calling them Nazis or equating them to, to Nazis. And I think if you fast forward from that interview, 2019, to where he is a year and a half later or so, speaking at the Jericho March rally on December 12th, 2020, I believe it was in D.C., you know, talking to Charlie Kirk about how voter fraud happened, even though he couldn't prove it and didn't even understand how voting worked. You know, he knew in his heart that this had happened and that we should, and that, you know, people like him should fight to the last drop of blood to make Trump the president again. One of the only explanations I can come up with is that the reality of the Trump presidency was so bad that the only way to stick with it was to double down and to further leave the world as objective facts and reality. And that's what I saw a lot of in the summer of 2020, whether it was moving away from racial justice conversations to talk about child sex trafficking and QAnon conspiracy theories, or whether it was the doubling, the doubling down on the election lies that Trump perpetuated. There was just this, Trump really did take the connection between a lot of evangelicals and reality and just snapped it in half and was able to usher them into an alternative reality. I am certain that you as an author, your hope is that both those within the evangelical movement and those outside the evangelical movement will read your book, Testimony. But I wonder, as you're imagining these audiences encountering your book, how do you hope the needle moves? What do you hope will be the result of reading your book? For evangelical audiences, I really want to stress that I I'm not seeking to make people think like I do. You know, I think one of the mistakes I'm still prone to make, one of my maybe less positive evangelical instincts is I still have a tendency to, to try to be too certain of my own correctness. And I want to avoid that as much as possible here. I have, you know, made careful conclusions about a lot of this stuff, but I know that I have stuff wrong and I know that there are other points of view so to evangelical conservatives or religious conservatives, I would say, take what I say with a grain of salt, but I would hope that they would engage in the same sort of process of evaluation, of telling their own story to themselves and considering the ways that they've been formed by forces outside themselves. I've already mentioned Jamie Smith, the author. He has this great phrase where he says that evangelicals have a tendency to think of themselves as hatched rather than formed. And I think that's a really great insight especially for my parents' generation who really turned their back on history and tradition. So I think thinking about the ways that our ideas have come from places other than God or our hearts is really important. And I hope that people do that work. And then I think for the non-evangelical audience, I hope to create empathy. And there's many good reasons for that. One very tangible concern I have is that you do see in that charismatic revival theory podcast I mentioned, a growing radicalization among some sector of especially non-denominational evangelical Christians. And as I talked to Matthew Taylor about that podcast, I was newly convinced that it's really important, especially in the way he talks about spiritual warfare and distinguishes between sort of normal spiritual warfare or normal belief in the spirit world and the NAR's version of it, which is a radicalized version of it. It's really important, I think, to try to create those distinctions and find ways to bring people who are religiously conservative into a broader conversation, to integrate them into the culture, to give them a seat at the table. And I think there's got to be ways to find leaders from that world who maybe have some second thoughts about the way that this is going and try to include them. And I get it. Like People feel like these folks might be some people might think they're crazy. Certainly, there's got to be a lot of anger over the way that they took part in, in that January 6th insurrection that brought our democracy to the brink of failure. 
But Christians not from that world, I do think has to be a voice to say the, one of the most moderating impacts can be from forgiveness and inclusion. We've got to help these folks become stakeholders for the common good rather than antagonists who feel like they have nowhere to go but to these leaders who are going to further radicalize them. Well, John Ward, I embarked on reading your book, Testimony, knowing or thinking that I was not going to like it, not because of anything other than just the subject matter was one that I knew was going to really get me boiled a little bit. I just want to say every page of your book was so accessible. It was so well written. You balanced between talking about your personal life and journey and these larger issues so masterfully. I learned so much from your book, and I know that my listeners will as well. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to research and to write this book. But thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Uh, David, what you just said is a great gift to me, and I'm very appreciative for what you just said. And I'm really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I'm happy to have met you. We've been speaking today with John Ward. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. He's covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. You can find out more about his work at johnwardwrites.org. That's J-O-N-W-A-R-D writes.org. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.